Well, good morning once again. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm the music and ministry coordinator here at Christchurch. Um, let me invite you now to, to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide where you'll find our scripture reading for this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can also open that. Uh, we'll be looking at Ephesians 1, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 10, uh, but our focus this morning is on verses 7 to 10 specifically. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, we started working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul's letter is, is filled with joy and celebration of the grace and peace that God has given them in Christ. In Christ, they've been blessed with new life, uh, new ways of behaving and relating to each other, and a new community in the church, the dearly loved bride of Christ. In verses 7 to 10, which again we're looking at specifically this morning, we find Paul in the middle of an incredible burst of praise, thanking God for what seems like every element of salvation, past, present, and future. Uh, it's hard for Paul to contain his excitement. Uh, this burst of praise, it, it's dense. Th there's more here than we can do justice with this morning. Um, it's packed with theological riches, but it's also practical. Uh, these core truths of the Christian gospel ought to impact every area of our lives. Uh, whether you're here today as a Christian or someone maybe just exploring what Christianity is, it's worthwhile for us to, to listen to Paul's words, what he has to say in our text, because if they're true, and I believe they are, they change everything. So with that in mind, I'll invite Henry forward, who's going to read our text for us this morning. Uh, but before he does that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that, that you speak to us through your word, even today, even here this morning. In our passage today, we find deep theological truths that, that ought to impact our entire lives. Would you give us ears to hear what you have to say? And in hearing, give us understanding, belief, and empower us by your spirit to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please join me in listening to God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there's a, a, a children's story that, that tells of a young boy who loved the water and loved sailing. The story doesn't say, but let's imagine that, that he's a young little Nova Scotian boy. 
Um, so intense was his love for the water and for sailing that uh, with the help of his father, he spent uh, many months making a, a beautiful little model boat. He took then his newly crafted boat to the water's edge and he began playing with it along the shore. But a sudden gust of wind came. It, it caught the tiny boat and carried it out to sea and eventually all the way out of sight. Distraught, uh, the boy returned home inconsolable. Day after day, he would walk the shores in search of his treasure, but it was always in vain. Then, one day, he saw his boat while walking in the city in a store window. He approached the the shop owner and and explained that that the boat in the window was actually his. But the owner, he he wasn't too interested, for he had paid a local fisherman a, a pretty good price for that model boat. If the boy wanted the boat, he'd have to pay just like any other, any other person. So the boy, he, he, he went to work. He, he did any odd job he could find until finally he returned to the store with the money. At last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he said with great joy, you are twice mine because I made you and I bought you. The famous children's story sums up well the topic at the heart of our text today. Redemption. Redemption is at the heart of the text, it's at the heart of the Christian life, and it's central to the work of Christ. Redemption, for Paul, ought to give us great reason to praise and give thanks to God. But what exactly is it? What does it mean for us, and why is it such an important part of Paul's outburst of praise here in these verses? Well, these are questions I hope that together we can answer this morning by looking at our text more closely. And so again, we're going to look specifically at verses 7 to 10. And we're going to look at at, at this text in three parts. Redemption defined, redemption accomplished, and then redemption applied. So that's redemption defined, redemption accomplished, redemption applied. First, redemption defined. So what does Paul mean? In him we have redemption through his blood. What is he saying? Well, today in our world, redemption actually is typically used in a more general sense. Uh, Speaking of someone being being rescued, generally. But here in our text, redemption actually has a more specific meaning. It's actually referring to a ransom paid to get someone out of captivity. It means to secure the release or recovery of persons or things by the payment of a price. In this definition, then, there there are two aspects that are necessary for it to be redemption. The first is that redemption implies a captivity, a bondage, or a slavery of some sort. The person needing to be redeemed is captive or enslaved to someone or something, and they cannot escape. The second aspect of redemption is that there is an exchange or substitution. Some sort of payment must be made. Uh, Now that payment uh, could be financial or it could be more serious like the life of another person. The story of the boy and the model boat, although somewhat trivial, does have both aspects. The toy boat is in captivity. The shop owner has taken it and he won't give it back. But the young boy, after collecting the, the necessary funds, he pays the price and the exchange is made. The young boy redeems the boat from the shop owner. Similarly, Paul is telling us, if you're a Christian here today, you have been redeemed. 
You have been bought back with a price. And so it's easy then for, for, for Paul, for us to see that redemption is a cause for celebration. Someone who is captive or enslaved has been set free. There is reason to celebrate and praise God. But if we stop for a moment and, and kind of connect the dots, while redemption is praiseworthy, it, it probably raises some questions for us all, whether you consider yourself, again, a Christian or not. Who has been redeemed? Are some still enslaved? Was I enslaved? Am I enslaved? Have I been held captive? By what? By who? While redemption is praiseworthy and a great reason to celebrate, it does imply some things that are actually difficult for our modern ears to hear. Because for the one to be redeemed, they had to be enslaved. So who then is Paul talking about? Well, Paul will explain in chapter 2 of Ephesians that all are dead in their sin. In his letter to the Romans, he explains that all of humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie so that no one is righteous. He's explaining, again, something hard to hear, that each one of us is not only guilty of sin, but we're also powerless to fight sin on our own, powerless to save ourselves, and that our sin actually deserves to be punished. So as we connect these dots, that means that apart from Christ, you're enslaved to sin. The situation's so bad, in fact, that none of us can save ourselves. We're dead in our sin powerless in and of ourselves to experience new life. We're hopeless if what Paul says about us is true. I think we can all agree that the world has some serious issues, but I think we're tempted to believe that, that those problems are because of other people or external factors. They're, they're not because of me. In fact, I think at times we think if everyone was just maybe a little bit more like me, a lot of these problems could, could probably sort themselves out. See, it's one thing to see yourself as a sufferer, someone pushed down by the brokenness and weight of the world, so, someone who just needs a helping hand. But it's another thing to see yourself as someone in bondage, in captivity. You are in prison and you're guilty. So you're not in prison by mistake. You actually do deserve to be there. See, it's a, it's a different thing to see yourself as a sinner in need of a savior. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. We like to think we're actually good people. And yes, we may need a helping hand here or there, but you know what? We, we can manage fairly well on our own. Uh, our world, it, it loves to tell us, and we're tempted to believe that we know best. We're free to live and love as we ought. No one can tell me what to do. Uh, no one can know but me what's best for me. True freedom, it, it's following my own path, free from anyone else's rules, ideas, or expectations. True happiness, then, is when I get to call the shots and when I get what I want. But Paul here, he's painting a much different picture of the human condition. We're not strong in and of ourselves. And we're not wise enough to fix our problems. The truth is that apart from Christ, we're enslaved to sin, enslaved to the things that will demand everything and give us nothing. We're living for things that will ultimately lead to our destruction. All of humanity faces the same plight, the same issue, and the same sentence. We're all in need of redemption. 
And this leads then to our second point, redemption accomplished. Verse 7, it tells us this, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. There is reason to give thanks because a payment has been made to secure our freedom. In Christ, believers have been redeemed. Christ has accomplished our redemption for us. We were without hope, but in Christ, through Christ, we have redemption. We have a reason to celebrate. Here's the thing. There was no amount of money, though, that could secure our redemption. Rather, our redemption cost Jesus' life. How have we been redeemed? We've been redeemed by his blood. Jesus secured our redemption by giving his life for ours. The price was too much for any of us to pay. But in Christ, we have a redeemer who has released us from our bondage to sin and into his glorious grace. We, we see this reality explained throughout scripture. Uh, Hebrews 9 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. 1 Peter 1 tells us that you were redeemed not with perishable things, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus redeems. Jesus gives life for those who are enslaved to sin. Jesus gives his life for his own enemies, people who are powerless, weak, and unable to save themselves. See, we have, we have great reason to celebrate because if you're here today as a Christian, you were dead and you've been made alive. You were enslaved to sin and now you're set free. You are an enemy of God, but now through Christ, you've been redeemed. We were once without hope, but now through the blood of Christ, we've been brought near to God himself. And we come, we come this morning even, not as subjects or simply servants, but as sons and daughters of the king, co-heirs with Christ. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We have reason to celebrate. But the news gets, gets even better. The good news doesn't stop there. And Paul explains in our verses this morning that our redemption comes with even more blessings. And this leads to our third point, redemption applied. So Paul explains that through our redemption, we have been granted three present blessings and one future blessing. So that's three present blessings and one future blessing. And these accompany our redemption and again, give us more reason to celebrate. And so we'll just work through these relatively quickly. The first three present blessings. So in verse 7, we see that our redemption through Jesus' blood has earned our forgiveness from all our sin. So the first present blessing then is forgiveness. In uh, Kent Hughes' commentary on Ephesians, he tells of a man named Albert Speer. Uh, Speer was a close confidant of, of Hitler, whose technological genius kept the Nazi factories running throughout World War II. Speer uh, evidently was the only one of 24 war criminals tried at Nuremberg to admit his guilt. He then served 27 years in prison during an interview, then after his release, the interviewer asked him, the interviewer said, you have said that the guilt can never be forgiven, or at least shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? Speer responded, I served a sentence of 27 years, and I could say, I'm a free man. My conscience has been declared clean 
from serving my time in prison. But, he said, I can't get rid of the guilt. The interviewer, he, he follows up and asks, you really don't think that it's possible to clear it completely? Spear, he shook his head and he said, I, I don't think it's possible. The tragedy for Spear is that as heinous as his crimes were, for Spear there was and there is a hand to lift him up. But he didn't know it. But the same is true for you, for each of us. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what your past looks like, whether you're a war criminal or whether you've committed other terrible, heinous sins. There is a hand ready to lift you up. Christ offers to pay the penalty for your sin if you repent, repent, sorry, admit your sin and your need for a savior and trust in his redeeming love. There can be peace. You can have a clear conscience through Christ's redemption by his blood, which has paid the price for your forgiveness. Paul himself, the writer of Ephesians, he knew of this incredible forgiveness. Earlier in his life, he was completely opposed to Christianity. He persecuted Christians to the point of stoning and killing Jesus' followers. But Paul, even Paul, was now assured that his own sin had been covered by the blood of Christ. What a reason to celebrate. Christ has purchased forgiveness for your sin by paying the penalty himself, by dying in your place. God has really forgiven you. There is nothing he holds against you. The sin that is still plaguing your conscience has been paid for in full. There is no sin too great that is beyond God's mercy. We sing it often. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. But in this wonderful exchange, something else happens. And that's that's Christ's perfect life. His righteousness is given freely to us so that now when God looks upon us, he doesn't only just see us free from sin, but, but he sees dearly beloved children, precious in his sight. Our sin, yes, removed as far as the east is from the west. Our guilt and the stain of it washed whiter than snow. But also his obedience, Christ's perfect life, credited to us as righteousness. The first present blessing is forgiveness of sins. But there is another, which we now enjoy already. God doesn't only forgive us, but he lavishes his grace upon us according to his riches. We are objects of his divine favor. What does it mean that that, that God gives grace according to his riches? Think of it like this. Elon Musk, uh, currently, as of this week at least, it constantly changes, but currently he's the richest person in the world. He's got a net worth of well over $200 billion. Now Elon could give from his riches. For instance, he could donate, let's say, a million dollars to a worthy cause. That's, That's pretty generous. But the reality is, that's equal to one of us giving about $100 of our own income. Or, Elon could give according to his riches. He could live, give lavishly. Right? How big would his gift be then? And here's the thing. God's riches in Christ are infinitely greater than any person who's ever lived on this earth. Charles Hodge says that when God gives according to the riches of his grace, he gives from his unlimited treasure house. He gives his grace an overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God 
freely accessible through Christ. God's grace, rich enough to save Paul from his sin, and it's rich enough to save us from our sin. And when we realize we've been redeemed, not because we've deserved it, not because of anything that we've done, but because of God's free and lavish grace, it then changes us into people who can't help but be gracious to those around us. The third blessing that accompanies our redemption is wisdom and insight. In being redeemed, forgiven, and granted inexhaustible grace through Christ, we're now given wisdom and insight. Right? How should redeemed people live? Well, Christ has given us wisdom and insight to that end. Living in light of our forgiven status, of our redemptive status, without taking advantage of God's mercy or presuming upon his grace. In Christ, we have the word made flesh, wisdom personified. And now we as Christians are called to put that wisdom into practice by cultivating and nurturing this gift. Diving into God's word, communing with God himself through Christ. But we don't do this on our own strength. Instead, we do it through Christ who dwells in us by his spirit and who empowers us to live lives of wisdom and insight. To live how redeemed people ought to live. But there's one more blessing that Paul tells us of, and it's a future blessing. You might call it an already and not yet blessing. And that is that Christ is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's the blessing. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. History is, is moving towards a glorious goal. Through redemption, God is bringing everything under the headship of Christ. John Stott, he, he writes that Paul is referring to that cosmic renewal, the redemption of the universe, that liberation of the groaning creation. God's plan is that all things which were created through Christ and for Christ and which hold together in Christ will finally be united under Christ by being subjected to his headship. The world will be as God intended it to be, free from sin and pain and suffering. Christ as king and we his people and his creation, worshiping him forevermore. God's work of redemption in Christ is moving towards that end. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, repent and believe the good news of what Christ has done and is doing. He alone is powerful enough to redeem you and save you from your sin by his blood. Enter into his love, his grace, and his freedom as God, through redemption, unites all things under the headship of Christ. If you're here today and you're already a Christian, be assured that through your redemption there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ, who has redeemed you by his blood. Submit your life again to him, endeavoring to live with all wisdom and insight according to his word and hope expectantly as he unites all things to himself. There is reason to celebrate. Christ has redeemed you by his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the blood of Christ you have redeemed us. Continue to do this work here in our city that, that many more people might find redemption for their sin through the blood of Christ. Teach us 
what it is to live as redeemed people as we expectantly wait for all things to be united under Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.